everyone and welcome to another episode of Rotating Reels. Calling in from Portland, Oregon. I'm one of your hosts, Keegan Tran. Calling in from Seattle, we have two of the usual suspects, Taylor May and Hank Showalter. But calling in from Seattle, we also have another Mr. Tran? What's going on? Bao Tran, introduce yourself. Brother! Long time no see. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while since I've seen my uh, family member Bao Tran. But the director of The Paper Tigers... A huge movie on Netflix is here to chat with us. So very, very uh, excited for that. Thank you again, Bao, for coming to talk with us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Hey, all. Hello, <laughs> everyone out there. Cool, cool. Well, uh, yeah, so I guess for history, uh, Taylor was actually the first to watch this movie. He found it on Netflix. And then uh, we have a film review show where every week we, uh, very similar to David Chen and, and the film cast, we talk about what we've been watching every week. Um, Taylor came in with The Paper Tigers, said he had a really good time with it. I lived in Seattle. That's how we all know each other. We used to work together in Seattle. Um, and we all love movies that are set in Seattle. So we all watched it, had a good time watching it, and just were super stoked on it. So uh, I guess we can get the fact that we all really appreciate this movie out of the way. But yeah, again, a really great movie. Um, yeah, very appreciate that you're here. We have some some stuff we want to chat through. And uh, just uh, the top of the call is that we are actually first degree of separation removed, um, and that is that we actually interviewed uh, an actor from Prospect, and you're actually credited as the action director for Prospect, is that right? Yeah. Was it Pedro Pascal? Did you talk to Pedro? No, we talked, we, <laughs> I wish, we were uh, still in the mid-leagues. <laughs> no, we interviewed uh, Arthur, the, the young boy from the village. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's actually the little, little brother of uh, of my fiance so that was a oh small world strange connection <laughs> yeah Come on. very cool yeah prospect uh film again out of pacific northwest a lot of things are brewing in, in these last couple of years uh zeke earl and chris caldwell are fantastic filmmakers um good friends of mine and uh just came out to help a few days and i think it's a finale uh that we had i had come out to help out uh with some of the action design and just kind of like just kind of sculpting it all credit goes to them as far as the filmmaking and the storytelling i was trying to trying to get a little credit and really i just want to show up and go to crafties and get some food and maybe like <laughs> point like different directions and no one was looking where i was pointing but it didn't matter i got the credit so i win i win zeke and chris there you go it's on your imdb and that's yeah. what counts right yeah yeah and actually uh fun another fun fact i mean we have this quite ancestral up here in uh pacific northwest Take that how you want to take it. I am just I'm just gonna throw that out there with no explanation. But uh, Daniel Caldwell is the composer. Uh, Prospect is also our composer for the Paper Tigers. No way! Oh, nice. Wow. Very yeah. very small world. So we we wanted to talk to you, and I saw the movie before we knew any of that. We had we had no idea any of those connections or anything. Right on. <laughs> we were seeing. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's that's cool that it kind of you know is shown out on its own, so without really much contact needed. Yeah, 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 most definitely. Yeah. And it, I mean, again, we'll, we'll get into it later, but it's super exciting seeing like all these international district stuff and seeing the old folks playing ping pong and all that stuff. We're like, hey, I, I know that corner. I feel like I've, I've had dibs on there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool, cool. Well, uh, I, you know, I'm sure you've answered this a million times, but you know, you've talked in the past about you know how you got started, your your mentorship with Corey Yuen, famous Hong Kong director. Kind of what was your start into directing and, and filmmaking in general? Yeah, I mean, I started at, uh, I would say it's early age. I feel like I'm a late bloober when you hear like Scorsese and Spielberg starting at four, you know, I mean, maybe started around 11 or 12, but uh, I, I grew up watching Bruce Lee. I was, you know, I'm a first generation Vietnamese American immigrant, you know, I was the first in my family that was born here. Uh, so kind of like kids stuck between two cultures and two worlds. So I grew up, you know, watching Bruce Lee and a lot of Hong Kong movies uh, at home. And then you'd go out and see Spielberg and Cameron and all this stuff. So that, that, that was kind of the movie and entertainment diet. And uh, just, just this morning, I was chatting with someone about, uh, you know, I don't know if y'all are familiar, but there's this, these theory TV serials out in uh, Hong Kong, you know, made by one of the well-known networks as TVB, but they would make like these giant, um, I guess you would call them like limited series, but they're not limited. They're like 40, 
40 episodes that are like an hour each, you know, based on mm-hmm. Lewis Cha's, uh, a lot of the Wuxia um, novellas and, and serials that he wrote. So all those, all this stuff was adapted into these like long form uh, stories that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. where the story ended, you know, where I think at that time in the eighties, a lot of stuff on TV in America was like, you know, your dynasties, you're kind of like all this stuff like kept going, you know, it's like kind of this recurring type of TV, which is kind of a precursor um, to what we're seeing now, which is a lot more limited series, but still long form. So in a lot of ways, I kind of was able to see, you know, that type of storytelling on a longer canvas, but stories that ended or had an arc and finished even before, you know, the st- it was even a thing here in America. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of interesting, kind of like, you know, just basically uh, getting a taste of all types of entertainment, you know, long and short feature and TV, uh, different languages, different cultures, uh, different sense of humors, obviously. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's how I kind of grew up, but it wasn't until I saw Jackie Chan or really got into understanding what he was doing. At, and I was kind of studying martial arts at the same time. So I was starting to really appreciate uh, what he was doing. And then I really wanted to get into as a filmmaker, or just really understand mm. filmmaking, uh, even as a hobby at the beginning, just kind of grabbing, you know, the family camcorder and filming with the backyard and just kind of emulating all that stuff. And uh, just kind of like doing it, you know, tinkering and figuring out reverse engineering because we didn't go to film school. We didn't know any, know any better. There was no YouTube tutorials. So you just had to kind of like figure, figure things out, out as you go. <laughs> yeah. And then flash forward, maybe a couple of years later into teen years, there was, um, uh, Robert Rodriguez, uh, Rebel Without a Crew. Uh, that was a really influential book. That was just kind of like you can do it all by yourself if you you know figure out you know all the departments. And that was kind of uh, basically how I grew up in that sense, just learning all the departments and just understanding writing, shooting, producing, editing, and all that thing, all that stuff. You know, all together as opposed to kind of like going to a formal film school where you kind of like learn all this piece by piece. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. so I just kind of look at it all as one as one one organic thing so maybe that's kind of a different perspective on that um but yeah every, i mean i think it's a similar uh uh biography as a lot of people my age chris and zeke included just kind of like you know going out in your backyard and filming you know basically you know home video you know, home movies and learning from that so yeah well and so i feel like you have this kind of blend of of a very similar story for a lot of people right this going out at, I feel like you're closer in age to us, a little bit younger, right? It's a lot of people say the eight millimeter camera, but for you, it's probably a digital camcorder, right? Going out and, and shooting stuff in your backyard. But I know that like after that, you went over to Vietnam and you learned a lot about directing and editing also probably as a young person as well. Like, do you feel like that, that perspective that you got editing and directing overseas kind of helped shape you as a director in ways that maybe was different again from, like you said, people that got the more traditional kind of film school background? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I can, I can't really tell you what, they, what those kids learned in film school. Really, I don't really <laughs> yeah. know that experience, uh, so I can just kind of, kind of only speak to my, my own. Uh, but yeah, kind of exactly kind of what you said. I think number one, uh, let's remind everyone that this was before YouTube. This is before anything, so <laughs> the stuff that we would make wasn't quite out there for public consumption per se. It was just kind of to show your your buddies on a Friday night, look what we did and just kind of laugh about it. But, you know, I had ambitions and I had like grander ideas about what we wanted to do. And so that was my kind of like key takeaway from Corey Yoon, you know, Corey Yoon was a family friend. And so fortunately I was, I was, I was uh, able to kind of uh, get a lot of advice and, and, and be mentored by Corey uh, in that sense. But he, you know, he, you know, obviously was making films uh, for the world and the whole international, you know, global audience. So he already kind of set me on the path of like the stuff that he was telling me. It was like, you know, just expand your vision, you know, what you're doing in the backyard, just still think about right. it. It's for the world. And that's like, you know, to a little teenager, a punk teenager like me, that was like pretty mind blowing to have to you know, expand and just like, I thought it was just like, this was just some fun, you know, stupid video we're making, but no, like, like have a grander idea about that. Um, and grander, not that sense that it has to be like this big, spectacle stuff but just think about how someone in india is going to understand this or how someone in china is going to understand this or how someone in england is going to understand it and just kind of expanding what it means to have a visual language which is what movies are right and just really understanding that so that kind of prepped me uh to what you're asking about is like going to vietnam and and i'll tell you it's kind of a it's not really a linear route because a lot of us again we're making movies and a lot of us uh, of this generation are, 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 you know, expats or kind of uh, immigrant uh, communities and families, but there was opportunity in Vietnam 
uh, for making movies uh, for a lot of my peers. And there were a couple of peers that, you know, you could say a little bit older than me or my seniors in that sense that were ready to gear up to make their, their features and whatnot. And so I went over to, uh, uh, to Vietnam to work with them as an editor. Um, so again, like the things that I was saying with, you know, the rebel while that crew thing is that you kind of learning all these departments. So Jack of all trades and you're not say master of what, but you know, I was Jack <laughs> of all trades in that sense, but you know, I knew editing really well and, and they needed an editor because over there, um, the, what we call kind of the department heads or the, 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 the keys, if you will, weren't quite there in terms of like the skill set. Uh, so they needed to kind of bring the Vietnamese Americans and whatnot to kind of come back. And so I came back really as, as a lark to be able to help and work out uh, on films with my friends at first. And then, you know, that stuff was all, that goes to theaters. It was, these are like studio movies for Vietnam. Yeah. And so again, it puts yeah. you on like this whole bigger um, thing. I still remember, you know, I was an editor, so you have a kind of deadline. I remember going through the streets and seeing like the poster and the trailer for the movie of the thing that I was cutting. And I wasn't <laughs> even halfway done yet. And I saw the release date and I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> You know, it's like you see that date <laughs> that you have to go for in any movie you make it and you just kind of like wish and pray, you know, whenever a film bus will release. But this has dates. This has deadlines that you have to go deliver on. And so, again, it was just kind of like it was a great growing experience. And in terms of just also understanding Vietnamese culture and, uh, you know, sensibilities and just kind of what that means as well in the storytelling. Yeah, well, and I feel like there's there's so much of these martial art movies too that kind of like transcend language, like so much of it is in the physicality of it too, right? Like even some of the humor kind of transcends the language of it too. But I guess like, it's so funny that you said like you went to Vietnam and there was so much of this deadline culture. Like, do you feel like when you came back and you started making like US productions, do you feel like those deadlines were something that were you were better prepared for or something that was, you know, even more in place once you were making movies here? It depends on the project, yeah. But I think just the fact sure. that these were theatrical releases in Vietnam, it's like they had marketing and they had, you know, the whole the, the whole shebang. You know, you could say all the things about what it was supposed to be. Because also in Vietnam, like there's big holidays uh, to release your film, yeah. just like here. But you know, they, they have like Vietnamese uh, the Lunar New Year, which is like a big movie date, and so you everyone's kind of scrambling at the same time. Uh, so you kind of see all your peers doing different things on different movies. Uh, but again, it depends, like the same thing here in the States, same thing, you have a film with a deadline. But just in the matter of what favorite Tigers, clearly there was no deadline because it took us 10 years to make, but um, <laughs> that's like an indie film that just like you have to will it into existence, which I think is on the complete other side of that spectrum where it's like, you know, you, you have to raise the money yourself. And, you know, there's all these things that you just have to kind of like push up the hill and find a way to release and find a way. And it's just all scrappiness from that side. So, I mean, it's all like, there's no one way to make a movie or one way to do a TV show or anything. All that stuff is just like depends on the circumstances. Uh, but yeah, so but as a whole, it gave me kind of a great sense of uh, all these different things, working with deadlines, working without, but also, you know, even when you're making a movie, you still have, you know, you have to make your day and you have to get all your footage that you need. So all, all those things are generally the same as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I guess, you know, you said like it was a 10 year process making Paper Tigers. like. And, and you know you had said that this was a an era pre YouTube, but I feel like so much of the Asian American experience in the 21st century is YouTube, right? Like so much of Wong Fu Productions and, and Just Kidding Films and all these guys that are on YouTube and and getting their stuff out there. And I remember, I don't think it was 10 years ago, but back in the day, I'd, I'd seen the short version of the Paper Tigers, and I remember seeing like the the fight on top of the the shipping container and things like that. Like I know that when you had started the the kick. Uh, a Kickstarter crowdfunding for this, like the short film version of the younger version of these three kids was something that you were shopping around a lot. Like, how did we start from the short of the Paper Tigers into the full production of it? Yeah, it's an interesting path. Uh, there was nothing traditional about this. And again, it was a little bit, a lot more just scrambling to try to find a way to get it made. But uh, it worked out this way because we were trying to raise the money for the film, which is really difficult. It's obviously um, probably what took both the most time of everything of those 10 years to, to kind of actually get the money in place. Um, but we had some of the money. And so we were just kind of hitting this wall where, you know, nothing was changing and almost plateauing uh, in a certain way. And it just felt like things were, weren't kind of like really breaking. The water wasn't breaking in a way that we could actually like get going. And so we were kind of at this impasse. Um, so what we had looked at the script, we was like, Hey, there is in the first, 
you know, 10 pages of the first 10 minutes of the film, you have this uh, youth portion uh, that's set in the 80s and 90s, which is, if you think about it, it's a different cast than what you have uh, from the rest of the film. So maybe we'll, t- I don't know how spoilery, how spoilery we want to get, but <laughs> I did just kind of describing it in broad strokes. That's, that's kind of like what we had looked at. It's like we could shoot technically the first 10 pages, first 10 minutes of the film with the money we have. And what we call shoot them out is basically like be done with that cast and just have, you know, not have to worry about if they get older or they change, you know, if they, their voices drop and, you know, all those things that you don't have to worry about for continuity because it's, 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 it's in the can. And so we pulled the trigger and say, in the sense that we was like, okay, we can do it, but let's, let's go for it. And then we shot that. And then we use that, like you were saying, to kind of like pitch for the additional money for the rest of the money for the 90%, uh, the rest of the movie to shoot. Uh, you know what I mean? And so it's a bit daring uh, when looking back, but it was just kind of like you, you just had to do something because it was just we were just bumping against the wall and nothing was changing fast. And so that was kind of like in a sense kind of going to, well, craft wise, we kind of know what we have here. It's it's it was, this could be a very expensive short film or we could actually <laughs> shoot parts of the film, the feature film. You know what I mean? So that yeah. was the educated gamble that we took and now we look like geniuses <laughs> but you know, at the time, it's, it's not it's not like it's not a given because what if you don't raise the rest of the money and then now it's all at wash and so that's kind of like i think even the cast i think some of the the sadarsa brothers uh they came to the premiere uh in la the, the guys who played the younger version of danny and hang they were you know peter i think he was like oh my god I thought it was just a short film. I thought it was just like a, a concept piece. I didn't know it was going to be in the movie. It was just like, and so even the folks that were, you know, in that shoot with us didn't quite grasp what we were doing because it was a little bit, it was a little bit, you know, uh, risky. It was very crazy what we yeah. did, but it worked out. So uh, all's well that ends well. I, I love those entrepreneurial stories like that. Had you done that before? Had you like gone and pitched to try to raise money for any kind of project before? No, not to this extent, but it also similar to like, you know, there's a, maybe a uh, standard practice, I guess you would say, is like you shoot a proof of concept or you shoot like, you know, some type of mood piece or mood reel uh, to kind of demo what it would look like. And we had done some of that and it was more to experiment with the look. There's a short uh, that's online called The Challenger and actually has Andy Lee and um, Ken Kittigua in it. But that's kind of stuff like you could say maybe a prequel or some. Some type of sense, but it really was just kind of playing with the fight scenes and also playing with the visuals and experimenting on the look. But uh, yeah, I mean, but to the extent of doing a proof of concept to raise money, like that was, um, it felt like a waste of money for us, at least for <laughs> us, because it was like, why we, why it felt like reinventing the wheel because we're gonna have to shoot it again all over again, anyways, right? Uh, so my thinking was just like, let's just shoot again parts of the film that we knew we could get done. And then know that it it, pl- it will plug into the rest of the movie when everything else is is set. Nice. Um, so yeah, I had not a traditional, not traditional at all. Believe me, but, uh, <laughs> we call ourselves the what's it, the Kung Fu Boyhood. <laughs> it was a solid gamble, I would say. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So I, I had a question about uh, just kind of how long it took you to produce this movie. You said it's about ten years. Um, and I think that's really impressive because I've seen a lot of movies that took a really long time to make. And sometimes you can really tell they took that long to make, you know, you see the actors aging, obviously that wasn't a problem here because you were able to do separate shoots, but you know, you might see the actors aging or it might seem like kind of the direction of the film changed partway through production. Did you, was it a struggle to kind of like maintain the same vision for those 10 years? Did you always know exactly the movie you wanted to make? Like how did it evolve at all over that long time period? I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, well, it's interesting because it's like, you have to be pretty adaptable towards, you know, all the different scenarios that might come up because we're trying to raise money and we're trying to figure out like what kind of that sweet spot or what's that perfect uh, partnership with the right studio or the production company and so on. And so it's like, you know, like the saying, be water, you know, we're trying to be water, but you know, sometimes water is crashing against rock and squirreling through, you know, it's, it's, it's painful. It's very painful to be water. I'll tell you that. Um, but you have to like kind of adjust because, uh, you know, we had initial, uh, interest from a lot of studios in, in, in LA and Hollywood, you know, they wanted to change the cast to be white. And there, there's all these like ad nauseum, all these like ridiculous meetings, that we had to sit through about they was interested, but they want to change that, you know, 
uh, basically the, 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 the cast of color uh, so that it was a little more, you know, mainline or cookie cutter, if you will, for all those things. And so those are things that we had to kind of like say no to and just kind of clarify for ourselves what is the movie that we're setting out. Oh, I guess we're not going to be able to make it for 10 or $5 million that we thought that you would. Like we, did, we thought well, someone would just write us a check and we'd be on our way and make the movie we wanted and everybody wins. But, you know, there's always strings attached around those things. And so then we saw kind of our deal budget kind of like get lower and lower and lower and lower. And so we had different scenarios. You know, we had to kind of break down all the different shooting locations. Seattle was something that we had, were really set on uh, wanting to shoot in, but, you know, we still had a due diligence uh, as far as like for the investors and financiers and thinking about well, what would it cost if we shot in Canada or it's cheaper, you know, you have tax incentives and all those things. And you have to do that because it's just part of the way of raising funds and, and doing business and, and making sure all the numbers add up, you know? Uh, so those are the kind of things I think um, were the really challenging part, you know, in terms of like quitting or in terms of like, you know, not wanting to do it and, and call it a day. Like that was never an option. The challenge was also just figuring out what was that sweet spot, because it's almost like when you tighten the, tighten the belts too much, you know, you take too many off the budget and it's too low budget. Like that's then that, then you start, the movie starts suffering from that. And so that was my job as a director to try to make sure that we didn't cut too many corners but we cut the right amount of corners so that we could get it done. So that that's that is the biggest challenge uh, within indie film is that is that type of uh, navigating around all those things. And th those stories are always so cool because they don't they don't come through to the audience at all, right? Like we have we have no idea any of the due diligence you had to do up in Vancouver or wherever else. But that's like obviously integral to how the movie got made. So I lo love hearing that kind of stuff. Well, thank you. Thanks for thanks for hearing me out. But actually, that was one of the things like. That was one of the things that Corey had told me. He's like, nobody cares. <laughs> it's like, oh, so when you make a movie, when you make it, you can't, I can't sit here and make excuses. Right. So I think that's yeah. something that we all, you know, that's a major ethos that we do. It's, it's really hard and difficult and I'm happy to chat and tell you what happened. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, the movie either works or it doesn't. And so that's, that's kind of like what we, I guess that, that's what we were laser focused on. Yeah. And that's what all the other decisions that followed uh, is about whether uh, we could make movie good or not. Well, I mean, I feel like there's there's no dispute on the show of whether or not the movie came out good. I feel like we all like it, but like as as far as you're talking about, like you know, being very very like uh, digging your feet in on where it was set, <laughs> yeah, pretty soft punches to be thrown here, right? But you know, I feel like so much of Seattle, right? You're talking about Bruce Lee was a huge influence growing up, right? Like you know, Bruce Lee is so intertwined with International District and, and Seattle Chinatown as a whole, right? Like. I'm sure you could shop around cheaper. You could go to Vancouver, Toronto, right? But like how much for you was it important that you tell kind of this Asian American Pacific Northwest story like and, and really make sure that Seattle could be the focal point? Hugely important. Yeah, I mean, for all the reasons that you said, be just because, you know, martial arts genealogy wise, you know, a lot of people do martial arts are somewhat connected <laughs> to Bruce and his influence when he first came to uh, the States. You know, he, he set digs uh, down in, in Seattle first, and then like opened his Kung Fu school here, went to university here, met his wife here. So all the Kung Fu students that he had taught uh, still teach to this day. So that's a huge part of the, the influence of the community. But also, like you are saying, kind of the POC aspect that these guys are not monolith, they're not all Asian, right? So the, the Tigers and Carter and all, like they're all diverse. And that's something that is very, I don't want to say unique to Seattle, but it's something that, um, happens especially a lot in Seattle in that sense, because it's just, there, there's a lot more, in that time, there was just a lot more openness about martial arts and, and teaching martial arts to a lot of people. Uh, so it just kind of like, it became that kind of backdrop that just felt right. Um, and so that's kind of something that we wanted to do. And then obviously also like the rich Chinatown history as well. I mean, there's a lot of stories that, you know, go on in Seattle, International District Chinatown as well. There's a lot of uh, deep, deep history, especially from from the first wave of immigrants and, and so on. So anyways, it's just kind of a, like, uh, you know, that was home for us. And at the end of the day, it was also yeah. kind of like, um, not just, you know, backdropping martial arts, but also our, our own growing up that we were also multicultural. We didn't stick to, you know, our ethnic kind of uh, groups, you know, and, 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 and be in our little cliques. Like it was very much open and, and welcoming. Uh, and I think that's a Pacific Northwest quality. Yeah, for sure. Well. You know, another commonality there, I used to teach line dance in 
uh, Eugene, Central Oregon, and uh, we got our ass kicked by we we lost a lot of contracts to the the Seattle Kung Fu schools and their mar- their line dance crews. So it's you know that I feel like that history goes super deep out there for sure. <laughs> we have to do a rematch. We're gonna have to come up. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll have to do a uh, paper tile paper tigers uh, sponsored Baymo line dance cruise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, another question I was curious about, like you know, tying in so close to that that martial arts culture in the Northwest, right? Like, I feel like we've talked about how you were working on a, a relatively small budget compared to some of the offers that you had, right? Like, watching the movie, I think one of the things that really sticks out amongst all the characters and such a character driven story is how distinct their martial arts styles are to each character, right? Like, I'm thinking of like Drunken Master, right? All these movies that are like, you could, you could not see the face of the actor and, and instantly say who this, this character is in a certain movie. Like, how did you A, get this level of martial art training for these characters, but also like do it in a way that's so distinct to the characters? I mean, all credit goes to our action director, Ken Kedekwa. So he's also featured in the film, but, uh, you know, he really kind of like led the charge in terms of just figuring out all the different styles and just kind of what all that meant. And, uh, you know, we had talked, we had 10 years to discuss and daydream and, <laughs> and figure out, you know, what the type of action design we want to go. So there was a lot of that, uh, but a lot of, you know, all the credit really goes uh, to him and the action team with Sam Loke and, and Kerry Wong. So they had designed the action, but also, what what was interesting is that you don't really know what you have until you have them, you, you cast the actors. And so that's kind of the interesting thing because that's also what kind of what they bring to the table or what they don't bring to the table. And so you start to figure out and mold and, and design the action around them and their skills. You know, for example, uh, Ron, Ron Yuan, who plays Hang, you know, is probably the most experienced out of the bunch uh, in terms of screen fighting and or at least among the adults and all that. Most experienced and you've seen him in all these things like Mulan and everything. Uh, but for this role, you know, he gained about 60 pounds, uh, to play Hing. And so normally he's pretty well fit and, but, you know, he gained about 60 pounds for, for the role. And so even then that changes, you know, his whole feeling. And, you know, when you move, when you have your normal weight, you, you do your martial arts and you move, it's like, you're pretty familiar, but when you add like, you know, 60 pounds on it, your body's going to jiggle and it's going to wobble and move in a different way. Your center <laughs> of gravity is a little bit, you know, all over yeah. the place. So that was kind of a learning process for him too, to, and also embrace that because I think there was even some takes that we learned to, um, you know, to use that were, you know, NGs or no, no goods that we ended up going, oh, hey, that's pretty good. Like, actually is a good take that we want to use. Like, there's a kick, I think, where he slips and falls and we ended up using that take <laughs> anyway. So it's like, yeah, that's kind of, and it fits the character. So I think that was kind of the process that we had to be open to. And, and I think that the actors came at it um, in terms of like, they were performing their characters because we didn't have stunt doubles. And we didn't have, couldn't afford them, you know, it was, but we had, you know, that was the task that we laid before our, our, our cast and they were up for it. Um, but I think that kind of lends a way of how they perform the action, how we shoot the action. Cause it's not like you go cut and then like go to a wide angle and guys in a, you know, you know, doesn't look like him, but you know, has the clothes on and, you know, it's a bit <laughs> different size and they move and they move really well versus, you know, what you saw <laughs> yeah. before us. And, and it just, it always, the audience kind of, may not be able to point it out, but there, it feels like it's a little, it's never, never quite smooth. And so that's the advantage of just having the actors do their own stunts and, and you're always with them and they play the action as they would be performing, you know, like a stunt person, like I think it was Mikkel who plays Jim. He's like, you know, a stunt, a stunt double is not going to know how to play me, play me, you know, mm-hmm. like, and that's, that's an important part. Like even when you throw a punch, you just throw in a punch in a way that Jim would throw it, you know? So I think those are kind of like those little fine points that really, um, we just kind of ran with it and embraced it uh, and, and had it come, come, you know, I guess come to our aid in that sense. Cause we weren't trying to um, do like a Tony jaw or like raid redemption. That's a different action design. And so for us, you know, it kind of like, and we, it works in our favor. So you, when it works in your favor, you might as well embrace all that and all that and like awkwardness or kind of off timing and all those things. And it, and it worked. Yeah, and that that actually is something that made me feel like the movie sort of punched above its weight, which was that it seemed like all the actors really bought into the vision that you had, and that seemed to carry itself. Was that did that happen right off the bat? Like you you sent them the strip the script, and they loved it, or was there some more explaining, or did it take getting on set finally before that really hit in, or what was that whole process like getting all these people on board to this vision you'd carried for ten years? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I think everyone kind of like. It's one of those things when you set out to do something, you, you never really know because you all have, you know, it sounds a good idea. We're going to try it and like maybe it doesn't work or, or does work or whatever. There's always that 
trepidation. And so I don't know if there was like a full lock-in until like maybe, you know, I'm sure by the set, maybe each actor can, can give you a different answer. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, but I think, you know, I'll tell you with, from Mikkel, Mikkel who plays Jim's perspective, he'll say like when he first read the script, he was like, this could either be the corniest thing or a classic. <laughs> Yeah, and that's you know he tells you know he tells it that way, and uh, and it wasn't until like I think when we came to rehearsals that he was like then he saw how kind of we did the work, how we went about our work, and how we you know thought about it and talked about it. Then he felt boom like light bulb bomb, and he was locked in from that point of view. And so you know everybody everybody has a different way of processing you know what it is because it really is just words on a page at the end of the day, and uh, you know not everyone sees what it could be. You know we had pitched this actually to. Um, a, a few other martial arts actors or more, more well, uh, I guess, well-established martial arts uh, actors. And, and uh, I won't name names, but, you know, they, they didn't quite get it because they, they mm -hmm. passed on it. And they were like, well, this character, these guys lose. And I don't really understand why <laughs> I would play a character that loses, you know. And so, again, you know, it's not quite obvious what we were trying to do. And it wasn't quite um, clear in terms of like what we're, you know, the, the specialness or the kind of like the little things that we were uh, trying to do just from the page itself. You know, it's, you have to sit and sit with it and research and talk about it and break it apart. Then you start to like realize, you know, what, what's all there. Um, awesome. So just building on that a little bit, um, one thing that really stuck out to me in the movie is, is Hang has the, the bum knee. And it was uh, really convincing to me because I actually, I actually broke my knee doing karate about 10 years ago and I never did karate. Boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I watched Sorry, him and everything he was doing, I was like, wow, I can really imagine myself, you know, like really holding on to my knee, really favoring the other side that way. When you get something like that, like something so specific that, you know, specific body parts injured, where does that idea come from? Where does the direction come from? Is it just in the script? Does the actor bring, you know, did, did he actually have a bum knee in real life or did, was it something your action director just really knew how to guide him through? Yeah. That was in the script. Uh, the thing about Hing's knee was in the script. The thing about Hing and his, um, uh, his hair, uh, that came up when we cast Ron. Because it, it was like that became like when you see again, it's one of those things when you see and cast the actors, it, it, it changes the whole interpretation of the script because now they're actually in the living in the flesh, and you're like, oh, okay, what now? Now what do we do with it? And so it wasn't until we saw, I saw, or we figured out and cast Ron uh, that we came up with that idea to be able to kind of like figure out and then fit also fit you know the idea of hey, this guy kind of lives in the past and what what does that look like? It's not just you know it's not just a joke or a gag just to kind of make it uh you know like a gag just for the sake of it but it's like you know let's add some layers to this that kind of make sense for the character and so i think that's the kind of process again that process that you have to kind of start have a starting place that you kind of trust the script first and then kind of dive deeper oh what does that really mean what does it mean to, like you're saying what does it mean if you have a bum knee how are you going to sit how are you going to move how does it how do you comport yourself and so that's the job that ron you know brings to the table it's just you know that's his is his task of bringing that role to life, but also understanding what that means in a fight. And then also in, you know, collaboration with Ken and the action team, what does that look like when you have a bum knee in a fight? Are you going to favor this? How are you going to leap with that? You know, and all those things. And so it all just kind of like comes spilling out uh, once you start from there. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> what, I, I guess while we're still kind of talking about the, the angle of the fights, right? I, a question that I had while watching this, and we can cut this, and if this is something you wanted to cover, that's totally fine. But I feel like, you know, we've, we've been chummy a little bit about us both being Vietnamese, and I feel like, you know, I talked about I used to coach Chinese lion dance, but again, that's not something that's like intrinsic to our culture, right? And I feel like we have these three characters of the illegitimate disciples that are all these Vietnamese kids that are, you know, blasting crappy Vietnamese rap while they're fighting in a in a pool, right? Like, was, was there an intentional angle on, on kind of this... I don't know, maybe culture of Vietnamese kids biting off Chinese culture in the U.S. or was that an intentional choice? Maybe it came to be that way because I didn't. When I wrote it, I didn't have Marshall Club, Andy Lee, and, and Brian Lee, and Philip Tang in, in mind. Like we didn't know they were going to be in the film just yet. So I just knew that they were going to be punks. It was a little bit more reflective of this younger culture. Um, you know, you call them orphans, and 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 how they don't really have a formal teacher and all those things. Uh, but it is a thing, right? Is it's a thing that's out there, and uh, I think maybe the greatest compliment <laughs> that I could get from was Andy Andy Lee, who plays Death Dealer in Shang Chi. Shout out! 
but uh, he, uh, <laughs> he goes to me, he was like, yeah, I don't know if you're like making fun of us or what, but you, you had, you let us do our thing. And that was pretty accurate as to how, who we are in the movie. It's like, we are some two orphans and all the things. And I was just kind of, you know, laughing and chuckling myself, but I was like a little, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, it is, it's like, uh, and it just worked out, you know, in that sense that, you know, they happen to be Vietnamese and they kind of squat up and, and, you know, and they could speak. So Philip is, uh, Philip has a funny channel. It's called, uh, I think it's 108 Productions, but he has a, a Vietnamese sketch uh, YouTube channel that's really blue. It's pretty filthy. <laughs> and so i just let him ad lib like there's some of the vietnamese lines that where he's just like swearing up and down and cursing a storm in vietnamese which is hilarious so you know as again it's just kind of like what you're given and you just kind of run with it and as long as it doesn't kind of like compete or take away from what we're trying to do then and if it helps then that's that's all for it and that's kind of the nature of the improv and the b water element if you will it's just kind of like when you have all these actors have great ideas you let them you let them shine um but yeah, it's funny. I did get some flack. There was some we showed it to like this Vietnamese community, and they were like, "How come only the Vietnamese characters are are punks and disrespectful and blah blah blah?" <laughs> so, uh, but again, it's kind of a reflection again. You know what? You know maybe Viet's uh, you know studying kung fu culture, but also just as a whole in, in Asian American. That's kind of Asian American experience about what what is ours versus what is inherited or what you know everything's borrowed uh, when you're winning an immigrant at a certain point so there's a there's yeah. an interesting kind of like pass through on that i mean too like it, it's different than uh vietnamese kids in la right where there's there's this abundance and not that there's not culture in seattle right but it's like i feel like there's this this inclination to kind of clump together with asian kids in, in the northwest where it's not you know as abundant as like la or socal right so i feel like there's this big sharing of culture right 100 percent. i mean yeah i think you know i think to my cousins or you know andy lee and brian lee like they they're down in Orange County, and just I think of all, all my cousins who definitely kind of formed their squad or their again those kind of cliques uh, uh, that were strictly Vietnamese. Whereas like for me, like when I looked around at my friends uh, growing up, it was like Chinese and Korean and Japanese and Filipino, and you know I think I might have been one of two Vietnamese. I'm probably the only Vietnamese in that group, and so that's just the way the cookie crumbled. Just again the way that the, the kind of like. Uh, the, how multicultural again the Pacific Northwest is, and there's not quite like this one, you know, firm Vietnamese town, or this is the this is the little Saigon here, but there is this little Saigon, but still it wasn't like you know as as, as centralized as it is like in Orange County, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, I moved to Seattle and I can only hang out with these guys, so you know, hey, yeah, for sure. Well, awesome. I, I had one question that I've been dying to ask, um, and I think maybe now is as good a time as any. Um, and this it's it's going to sound a little broad, <laughs> but but go with me on this. What was the audience when you first when you first came up with the idea, and maybe this progressed over time? What was the audience you were going for with this film? Because for me, being from Seattle and, and knowing, you know, I, I grew up by Lakeview Cemetery, so I've probably been asked hundreds of times in my life, "Hey, where's Bruce Lee's uh, gravestone?" And I go, "Oh, it's right over there. I know exactly where it is." So I've been around all of this stuff, so it feels like the movie was catered right to what I'm looking for. Right? This is exactly what I'm going to the movies for. But for people in this international audience, people all over, how how central were they? I mean, were you thinking, hey, we want to be filmed in Seattle. There's this long martial arts history there, but maybe somebody in India or somebody in Vietnam might not know that. Was that was that centered toward you, or just maybe a broader comment on who was the audience you were going for with this film? Yeah, well, I think it's just starting from that. It's, it starts with the world. Like we just wanted to put a movie out there, and hopefully everyone or as many people. Uh, from around the world could watch and enjoy it and be able to pick up on. Again, it's just, that's the beauty for me of what action filmmaking is and more specifically Kung Fu filmmaking um, is that it's just a visual thing. And it's just like, it doesn't really matter, you know, where you're from per se uh, to really be able to enjoy it. And there's something powerful in that. Um, for us, we wanted to really, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think it was, so that's the starting point, but you know, what we had wanted to do or were really inspired by was Shaun of the Dead. And uh, we had thought of it as like, hey, we want to do for Kung Fu movies what Shaun of the Dead did for zombie movies in a way that, you know, I'm not personally super into zombie movies and, you know, not, I'm not a giant uh, zombie, you know, fan. But when I watched it, it was super engaging and super enjoyable and just really uh, 
uh, still sucked me right in into that world and, you know, the jump scares and thrills and all that stuff. You know, I was there for all of it. And so to me, it's like, what was happening there? There's something, something where it was just done in a way that I could tell they really loved uh, the zombie genre and all those shout outs and Easter eggs and all those things. But it still worked for me, uh, who was not, you know, a super, you know, a fan. So it just kind of worked on those both levels. And so that's what we kind of want to set out. Just uh, obviously, Kung Fu fans can be very, very critique and they're very, very, very nitpicky and all those things. So they're very specific, just like zombie zombie fans. So we wanted to do something that was uh, satisfying for them, but also be like um, appealing on a broader sense too. And it was just like, I think it was just writing this note. Someone had reminded me, it was one of those earlier pitch documents that I wrote. I was like, I want, I want this, like, I was like, I wrote like, I want this blue haired grandma in Iowa to see this and, you know, walk out or cheering on Danny and walk out of the theater, crunching the air and stuff like that. And uh, it's funny, flash forward, and when we were out uh, in release, uh, someone had, one of our editors, I think, was in a, I think it was like, was it Fashion Island or Bainbridge Island, which is kind of a more senior, uh, uh, a more uh, older older community. Yeah. And he sat and watched, like, there was an older lady, and she was, like, squeezing and making a fist during in the film and all that <laughs> stuff. It was like, hey, mission accomplished. It was like, you know, again, it's kind of like what we had always wanted to set out for, is, yes, satisfied that really... Um, um, you know, diehard Kung Fu fans, but also like people who wouldn't normally watch it, almost like, you know, their wives and the girlfriends or their partners or whoever, you know, I don't want to draw a gender line here, but you know, whoever yeah. wouldn't normally watch it, but because their partner's watching it, they kind of like, hey, what's that? And we've heard that story over and over of just their people's partners just, you know, sitting and getting sucked into the movie. And they say they usually don't want a Kung Fu movie per se, mm -hmm. but this was something that was really special. So that, you know, I find that really satisfying. Uh, that we had set out. So I think, to, you know, to that question, we just, it was a broad net, we, but we also kind of like wanted to do it in a way that was, um, um, that felt right, right? It wasn't just like pandering uh, in that sense. We didn't want to like, just like, hey, it's for the world, it's for everybody. And it's like, no, it's like, I think the more specific that you can make it to the Kung Fu world, uh, number one and number two, to the Pacific Northwest, you know, people kind of appreciate that specificity and whether they know it or not, it just feels like it's real. It, feel, it feels like it's coming from someplace. Yeah, it's it's honest, right? That, I mean, that, there's the when I've been reading reviews of the film, almost every single one uses the phrase uh, heartwarming, which sounds it sounds like a little a little blasé, but there's this like just like Shaun of the Dead, right? There's this indelible quality where almost anybody's gonna get something out of it, and th I just think that's so cool. And I have no idea how you would even set out to I'm gonna make something that's heartwarming because it seems like an impossible task, but you definitely did it. So. I forced it. I pushed the emotion button. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was when the wig yeah, came off. That's when. Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, the gloves and the wig came off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It's a funny thing. It's, a, it's almost like uh, for an artist or, you know, there's the craft side, you know, the, 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 the technical part of it. But there's an artist's soul that you have to kind of like really be aware of. And it's also be aware of how a movie makes you feel. And how like some a song makes you feel and tap into that like to what you're saying to reverse engineer it, it that I think is really hard. It's really hard because but, uh, but that's 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 kind of what we're chasing and at the end of the day. That that's the role of you know that's and the what that's why we get paid the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> we all laugh. It's not true. Uh, but yeah, it's, but it's, that's, that's the uh, but that's the you know that's the that's the goal of the artist to try to like you know, try to convey what we're feeling to, to another person. And I think there's nothing more powerful or beautiful than that. Yeah. Well, so for all of our listeners that are not from Seattle, this conveyed it, this conveyed the, the emotion of Seattle. Yeah, it's, that's right. I hope the Seattle tourism board, you know, <laughs> it's actually funny. We just reviewed another Seattle set movie uh, like a week or two ago, we reviewed uh, *Malignant*, the new James Wan horror flick. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And when I watched that one, I I liked that it was in Seattle, but they 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 kind of just barely set it in Seattle. Like a, they 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 got a couple shots like from on Cap Hill, and they got uh, it, it, one moment that really stuck out to me was they were talking about going to a hospital, and they said we're going to Seattle Medical, and I thought where the hell is Seattle Medical? You go to <laughs> you know Harborview or something. Um, but in this movie, you know, you saw people in Soundgarden t-shirts, you saw people drinking Bodhi's office. It really felt 
like a Seattle movie. And, uh, and I, I don't know, there might not be a question there, but just real props to you for, for, for whole-assing it instead of half-assing it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's also kind of the other side, especially say here in Seattle, there's a, there's a, you know, everybody's kind of looking for that really specific shout out. Like we want the pike place shot where the fish is getting thrown and the space needle. And that's never something that we ever set out, but there is kind of like people kind of want those postcard shout outs. And uh, I think that's, you know, it's a, that's a thought. Well, I mean, I'll just, I'll let them have that thought, but it's not what we were setting out to make and have because we were just wanted people situated in the city and going to this neighborhood and that neighborhood and you just kind of feel them going through this, this, this feel, uh, this, this world. But it, 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 I guess to those in the know, there's no doubt about where they are, but it doesn't need to like scream, you know, Seattle and, and red lights and all that stuff. So. Yeah. Hank was like, "There's, there's one Asian dude that can direct Seattle well, and then there's James Wan. <laughs> it's Ruben is Harper one. <laughs> I, I don't think I, they shot it. I don't. I, I think they might have shot maybe a couple pieces uh, yeah. in Seattle. But from what I know, I don't. I mean, I definitely would have known if they shot *Malignant* in town. But uh, they, yeah, I think they shot that elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure they did too. <laughs> Well, I don't mean to bust you, but I, I, you know, as someone who was an idea a lot to get brunch, I noticed there was a scene where they're doing the U-turn and they're out front out by Wajimaya and then they follow and then they're going the opposite direction in front of uh, A Plus Kitchen by the ping pong. So I was like, all right, I'm going <laughs> to, this is minus one point in my book. Keegan, that's why you're special. <laughs> that's why you Gold get the bitbox to review podcasts. That's right. Review that's films, right. Keegan. That's why I know. you're the one. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that's a month. 10 bucks a month. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting also, like, you know, in Hong Kong, uh, actually just talking about shooting locations, but watching, you know, a Hong Kong movies ad nauseum, it, the, it's a rock. It's not that big. You know, Hong Kong itself is yeah. maybe the size of probably, I, I can't, I don't know what the, I'm not good with numbers, probably the size of like King County, which is like the major metropolitan county here in Washington, but it's, it's not that big. So imagine 40, 50 years of gloried, uh, cinema history, but all of that has been shot in that in that little square uh, square kilometer area. So it's it's just a, an interesting way when you kind of think about you know how other cultural or how other um, national cinemas are are made. It's like it's really not that much yeah. real estate to be working yeah. with. So we're in good yeah. company, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know, I had a question from when you were talking about um, these kind of these these long form but limited series that have been popular in Hong Kong for a very long time. Um, and, you know, we don't have to go there. I don't want to get too political. But do you, do you know if that's been changing at all with the current political stuff going on in Hong Kong, if, if the film industry's felt censored or felt limited in what they're allowed to do, or, or has it not changed much? As far as the long form? Yeah, just, just in terms of filmmaking in general in Hong Kong. Well, same thing. I mean, I think it's kind of a, it's a good and healthy conversation to have, but I think there's also, it's not just the Hong Kong, but also China and Vietnam, uh, you know, where I work with, there is a censorship board that you do have to work with to be able to kind of pass. And actually one of the films uh, that I worked on, unfortunately, it wasn't able to kind of pass, uh, get uh, approval. Hmm. And so, you know, it's still, still in the vaults right now. Uh, so never got a proper release. So that's that's certainly a thing that is ongoing, and it's an interesting conversation to have. I think those are kind of like, um, those are I guess those are the questions about where things are coming about to have um, where you can develop artists. I think that's where I would like to kind of steer that conversation because to me there's no lack of talent, and there's a lot of young filmmakers, and I've worked with a lot of young filmmakers, and I'm just speaking for Vietnam specifically that aren't able to, you know, mm. sing their whole song, you know, they sing maybe a part of that song or they aren't, you know, able to show their whole heart in their filmmaking, this little part. And so I think that's, that's, I think is the greatest tragedy is that we're not able to kind of develop um, a young, vibrant national cinema, whether it be Hong Kong or China or Vietnam. Uh, and you're not encouraging the young filmmakers to kind of really stretch their wings and, and speak their truth. And so that's, I think, uh, that's the challenge that we have to make. So uh, behind the censorship and, you know, you can talk about the, the, the political content or even just the supernatural content, even supernatural content is, uh, is you know, very much on the chopping block for a lot of hmm. things. But it's more about finding that voice for the young artists to be able to do because that's what makes the country strong and that's what makes the country uh, all the better. And so I think that's um, 
something that hopefully the government can get around and understand what that means. Like that the uh, I think it's for the betterment of the culture, really, uh, versus yeah. of because they say it's meant to preserve culture, right? But it, it's mm-hmm. like when you kind of squeeze too hard, uh, you're not allowing the, the young filmmakers to really spread their wing. Well, and the, the freedom to be honest in all the little facets, which is something that I think makes this movie that you've done so good, is that it's so honest that it, it allows those really hard to identify emotions like heartfeltness to be carried through to people. And you think you've got to be honest in order to get there. So, yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't happen overnight, too. Right. So for develop for a voice filmmaker yeah. to develop their voices, they have to make several films to find their way and really kind of develop that. So if they're not getting those reps in um, and, I, you know, I, you, you could twist the blade in, in the other way on the double double edge side. It's like here in the States or the West, we're not having proper representation and storytellers and actors of color be able to stretch their wings and be able to tell their stories. They're not going to get better either. So. Uh, it's just a way of like really understanding and respecting the processes, you know, and maybe kind of what I'm really getting at is like really understanding and respecting how fragile the artistic process is. And it's not meant to be, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, be an overdramatic uh, <laughs> artist or, you know, with my beret or anything. It's not that it's just like, it's just, it's just so fraught with so many things that could go wrong and, and then not work. And so it's already hard as it is. So let's not make it harder. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, you already got to go shoot the due diligence stuff. You didn't want to do that, but you got to do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I feel like political stuff aside, right, we're already we're in this space where you talked about like your target audience. Right. So, you know, South Korean cinema, I feel like is having its its big thing right now with with, you know, Parasite and, you know, Vietnam had Dad, I'm sorry this year, which I feel like maybe made its way over to Western audiences. But, you know, outside of that, I feel like Asian cinema or Asian American cinema just kind of got its foothold. Right. So like. We're seeing kung fu movies from the West, right? Like, you know, The Paper Tigers, HBO's Warrior, Shang-Chi, right? Like, it just feels like it's it's barely hit its inception kind of infancy, right? Like, given that you had talked about, like, what your audience is and, and kind of where Asian American cinema is, like, given this foothold, if it feels like we got barely our, our, our foot in the door. What's kind of the next step from here, do you think, of, of the, that, that representation angle? Keep wiggling that door. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's very... Uh, very flattering to be a part of that conversation and just kind of name check with also the great titles that you mentioned. So it's it's like it is kind of the work of us as a community and also not tear each other down and just kind of build each other up. Because there's always kind of that challenge when um, things are, uh, how do you say it? Like things are maybe not up yet. And it speaks to, again, like we just have to get our reps and we have just have to plan, get the stories out, you know, as quick as possible. You know, Pixar is what is it? Break. I guess, what did they say? Yeah, go through as many drafts as possible and kind of the, I guess, the uh, the Facebook motto of like break things quickly or whatever. But there's something, uh, some truth to that in the sense that you have to just get your reps in and you have to learn your mistakes, get there faster and be able to kind of develop that. And so we, um, sometimes our community, I'm speaking in terms of the Asian American community, uh, sets the bar a little too hard and high uh, so that if you don't hit it, suddenly we, you know, we shouldn't support it or we shouldn't like help prop it up or support it in that sense. So, you know, how are you going to get to that spot of success if we're not allowing each other to develop? And so I think that's kind of that hard catch 22 that we find ourselves in for any community color that's still trying to find a foothold, like you're saying, uh, artistically, craft-wise, business-wise, everything. And, you know, when it's not quite 100% up to, it's not that A plus that that perfect Asian dad wants, you know, (laughs) it's suddenly not worth it, you know, and that's not fair. That's not fair to voices that are still, you know, still being nurtured and developed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, again, we see crap efforts from across the board. So I think, like, you know, even entry level stuff from <laughs> Asian American <laughs> filmmakers should be something to support. I, yeah. I'm firmly of the opinion. Less, yeah, I was Go just going to say everyone should get the opportunity to, you know, have a couple flops. You know, every, you know, we need to have the bad ones and the good ones. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's important. You you need something to compare to. Well, I think that's what the importance of filmmakers or film festivals, right? Specifically kind of Asian American festivals or what I guess we would call it niche film festivals. But that's where I came up. You know, most, all my films, my shorts kind of came up through Asian American film festivals. Now, I wasn't in the mainstream of kind of the white film festivals, right? I wasn't in those. Yeah. But those are the ones that gave me my voice and gave me a platform to be able to show my film, test it out, see what the audience reacted and figure out, you know, what worked and what didn't. So that was kind of like, uh, why I'm kind of personally um, really sensitive to wanting to kind of have 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 an environment or an incubator 
Uh, maybe that's a better conversation. Uh, in terms of just supporting as a whole, that doesn't mean you have, you don't have to say it's good. It's okay, you can critique. And, and I think sometimes it's, you know, we seem to the other side where uh, we're kind of like a little too um, uh, polite and we sit on our hands and not really challenge each other to be better. I think it's okay to, to be critique and, and also to, to, to want to build up. You know, there's a fairness and critique that in building up, but then there's the type of critique that tears down, which I don't think is, is quite helpful. Yeah. Crabs in a bucket. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's a whole other thing. I'm like, you know, in terms of just when we were trying to make this film, you know, there was um, other pushback from our own community uh, that was saying like, well, how come you're making a Kung Fu movie? Like you're just setting our people back and all those things. And, you know, given all the, you know, yes, uh, uh, terrible representation of, 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 of and stereotypes of, of, of Asian actors in, in martial arts roles or henchmen roles. Yes. We have a long history of that in, in Hollywood. Um, but, you know, but consider who's driving, who's in the driver's seat right now. We're, we're telling you stories. So it, it, at least in that yeah. sense, you know, at least give us that good faith uh, to want to support from that point of view. It's not, it doesn't come from above. The man's not making this one. Yeah. Well, and don't, yeah. don't I mean, seed Kung Fu, right? Like don't say like Kung yeah. Fu's off the table now, right? It seems. Yeah. 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 It's a little, yeah. It's a kind of like, you know, when you swing to these extremes, it, that's, that's when you have kind of these hard, hard points and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have one more question, but I know it's going to bomb the rest of the, the talk. So I saved it for last. If you guys have anything else, <laughs> feel free to throw it in. But I, I, I knew that I'd want uh, an absolute stinker to throw it in. I've, I've, talk, I've talked enough, so I'm good. <laughs> all right all right so this could be potentially the most offensive question so uh in the movie there's a, a potentially an easter egg i feel like i picked up on but maybe i'm i'm just being a complete asshole so all right we we have this this newfound character of the the illegitimate what's that is it gonna be true Okay. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that's the case well okay so so we have this new this new guy super well trained he's the guy that's learned the poison fingers and all of our you know the three tigers are incredibly invested in finding out who this guy is they're tailing him through id this is the scene again i called you out for where uh, geography didn't make sense but whatever we're, we're tailing this guy on a motorcycle through id he goes to this banquet hall he's getting dinner and then he he goes to the restroom and he poison fingers another guy Ahing's using the urinal, right? Ahing, he's he looks down. We'll, we'll call it a medium stream by by audio design, right? It's 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 a bit in the middle, and then you know the new disciple comes over. Let's call it a strong stream. It's quite a bit more sound design, right? It's quite a bit louder. Ahing looks down at his privates. <laughs> I'll, I'll report back on Tuesday after I've watched it in, in theaters and like you know how it sounds yeah we, he looks down at that guy's crotch and then the guy looks back at Ahing like dude what are you doing and then Ahing looks up there's a poster for beer and it's this incredibly shredded Asian dude completely naked and the, it's for Baodong beer and I was like what I feel like this has to be innuendo. So I looked it up. There's I couldn't find any articles for Baodong in, in Vietnamese breweries or anything. It doesn't seem like a, a, a real beer. So is this a long con to be an innuendo about yourself? Is this a, a big joke or is this just a complete coincidence? No, there is Baodong beer. You have to have it. You, you must try. I'll bring down a six pack for you. <laughs> I'm an idiot. All right. Well, so there's a it's, it's a real Baodong beer. Can you is it a thing that you can get stateside? That's actually we're we're gonna have a, a web shop coming up and it'll be baodong.com or baodongbeer.com and so you have to see that. Uh, essentially, uh, so obviously it's my name, Bao, and then it's our other producer Alan Duong's, uh last name. So it's Baodong that we kind of like put that together because when you have a design for that, you can't get clearance for you know copyrighted beer or copyrighted companies. Sure. So we designed it ourselves. So. Um, it is a long con, yes, because we're gonna we're parlaying it into a web store. So I guess you could call it a long con in that sense. You're getting into brewing. That was the the whole setup for the movie was just to start. I know, brewing. really, was... just to become a, a master brewer is really just what Guerrilla I really marketing. What I really want to do is master brew. <laughs> well, I had the nerves all night. I actually, I, I thought of that when I watched the movie, and I was like, God, I gotta ask this guy. So I, uh, whew, I was really putting myself on a limb there. I'm glad this all tied yeah, out. Yeah, well, you see the bottle. If you watch, yeah, watch again the uh, when the three tigers reunite. They have beer bottle, beer labels, safe out Duong, and there's there's a couple of Easter eggs throughout the film. So it it definitely pops up. Okay, rewatch time. 
<laughs> well, Keegan, I you got saved. Awesome. You got you. You found. You I knew know. there was something. Your mind went dirty <laughs> with it, sleuth. but that wasn't it. Way to sleuth that one. <laughs> but yes, again, both things can be true. So if you want to interpret the way you want to, <laughs> you may. I won't stop you. Sure. I mean, yeah, this was an open door, but I guess Bal will never be back. I feel like you know. Again, both are true. I figured it out, and also he never wants to talk with us again. So, <laughs> man, I'm. I have nothing else. Do you guys have any last minute questions? No, th- this was a, a huge privilege to talk to you about. Thanks for coming on the show. Like I said, we, we all love the movie, but getting to hear all these little details about it really just makes it that much better for me. Right I second thank that. you. Love the movie. Fun, love having a charismatic guest on. So thanks for coming. Oh, I tried to be, <laughs> I turned on the charismatic button and uh, I'm glad it, I'm still working. It's not rusty. So it's right next Thanks to the hot warming button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah the two. Sometimes it confuses the two. And then let me tell you, it gets really weird. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, cool. no, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. I think it was a, uh, there was a nice, there's kind of a, a good chat about Pacific Northwest. So it's kind of nice to kind of like talk shop about our, our hood. Yo. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Pacific Northwest. Again, uh, we're all based in the Pacific Northwest. We're recording this on 927. If you're in the Portland area, Bao, uh, I think the executive producer and the writer are going to be in Portland uh, 10-5 to do uh, a screening at the Hollywood Theater and a Q&A. So if you're in the Portland area, this episode will be out beforehand. So definitely swing by and check that out. I think it's $10, $15 to get a seat there. So definitely would encourage you. I'll be there. Uh, I'm going to get my Blu-ray signed. Uh, looking really forward to that. So again, Appreciate all this, man. This has been really awesome. Great, thanks for having cool. me. And if you and if you <laughs> catch this anywhere past that uh, date, then obviously we're on iTunes and Amazon. You can get the Blu-ray and, and all the stores you need. And uh, hopefully you can support through that. Of course, we're on Netflix, but the uh, transactions help the film the most. Let's put it that way. So uh, if you want to support the film, please please consider uh, getting the film that way. But watch it on Netflix, so don't... <laughs> just watch it everywhere. Watch just, it a couple times. Just leave it playing overnight. Yeah, we'll get all your tablets. Yeah, play it overnight. <laughs> we'll get those robots. All right, man. Appreciate it a bunch. This has been great. All right. Thanks, brothers.